This is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Uh, October 31st of this year will be a great celebration of the Reformation. We're having our church celebration uh, next Sunday, as we already talked about this morning. And because it is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, all eyes are on Martin Luther. Uh, all kinds of books have been published, conferences are being held, uh, celebrations in his honor. We're looking back to Martin Luther uh, as the man that God raised up to spearhead the reformation of his church 500 years ago. Now, to say that Martin Luther lived a colorful and eventful life would be one of the biggest understatements of the last 500 years. Uh, his life was fascinating, filled with danger and intrigue and triumph. Uh, consider just a few highlights of his fascinating and full life. Uh, at age 22, as he was traveling, he was almost struck by lightning. And in the midst of the storm, he prayed that if God would deliver him, he would make a vow to become a monk, which he went on to do. That was very much against his father's wishes. Uh, as a monk, as, the mem as a member of the Augustinian order, his bouts with depression and his lengthy stays in the confessional booth were legendary. He was a man on a quest for salvation. His mentor, Johann von Stoppitz, uh, could see that Luther was uh, a special man, specially gifted, a special talent, and with a, with a very unique interest in God and in salvation and in the scriptures. So he gave Luther a Bible. And he told him to teach it. He sent him off to the University of Wittenberg where he would study the Bible and become a professor of theology. Stoppitz was really Luther's leader. He led Luther in the right direction, even though very interestingly he would not follow Luther uh, into the Reformation. Luther went off to the University of Wittenberg. Uh, he became a professor of theology there, reading and studying the Bible. And for Luther it was really a dream come true. That's what he wanted more than anything else, was to study and teach the Bible. So to be able to set aside the scholastics like Aquinas and Lombard that everybody else spent their time reading, and to engage with the apostles like Paul and Peter for Luther really was a dream come true. This was a time when even monks and priests didn't really read the Bible, didn't really know the scriptures. Well, studying the Bible led him to make his great discovery, or really rediscovery, of the biblical truth of salvation by God's grace and of justification by faith, God's free and undeserved gift of forgiveness. He had his breakthrough in what is often referred to as his tower experience because it happened in uh, the, the tower of the Black Cloister. The, the monastery had a tower attached, and that's where Luther would often go and study. But actually, Luther tells us, in a more detailed account, that this great breakthrough happened in the bathroom as he was on the toilet, which was located at the base of the tower. So yes, Luther's great insight came while he was sitting in the outhouse. He even joked about this, about how God gave him his highest insight in the lowest of places. Luther's tower experience is not quite what people often uh, think it to be uh, when you actually dig into the history of it. Of course, as Luther began to work out the implications of his great discovery, his theological breakthrough, it led him into conflict with the powers that be in church and state. He began to challenge not just the moral and political corruption of the church, which others were also doing, but actually his breakthrough led him to challenge the corrupt teaching of the church, which was really at the root of its rot. And as usual, you can follow the money. You follow the money trail and you see what got Luther into trouble. By challenging the selling of indul indulgences, Luther challenged not only the Pope's authority, he also challenged one of the Pope's primary income streams, one of the Pope's primary sources of funds. See, the Pope in this time was offering to shorten time spent suffering in purgatory in exchange for monetary gifts. And to the common man, it was very persuasive. It seemed like a great bargain. But for Luther, it was sheer corruption of the gospel. It was nothing less than the buying and selling of salvation for money, treating salvation as a commodity. 
as if heaven could be, could be had in exchange for a cash payment. And so the church marketed first indulgences to the living, and then they realized there was this whole untapped market of those who had already died. And so now you could purchase an indulgence on behalf of those who are already suffering in purgatory to shorten their stay in purgatory. And they marketed indulgences with all kinds of catchy advertising jingles like Johann Tessel, whose famous line was that when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And again, this was incredibly persuasive to people, but Luther saw through it and he took it on, hurting the church where it hurts the most in the pocketbook. And so Luther had the audacity to question the whole system of indulgences, to question how payments of money could be used to cancel spiritual debts. Again, challenging Tetzel and others who talked about how so much grace was available for so little coin as if this were some kind of bargain. Luther said, no, this is preying upon the poor. How can this system that favors the rich and the wealthy who have all kinds of resources to buy their way out of purgatory for themselves and their loved ones, how can this be consistent with the message of the one who said, blessed are the poor? But as Luther began to attack indulgences, people quit buying them. Luther's preaching was bad for the Pope's business. And so, of course, a time came when Luther had to answer for himself. We have that dramatic picture in our heads of Luther going with a mallet to nail his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, which was all about his challenges to the selling of indulgences. Luther wanted a, a, a debate. He wanted a discussion. And actually, at the time, he saw himself very much as a loyal son of the church. He really believed that when the Pope realized what was being done in his name, what these peddlers of indulgences were doing in the name of the papacy, he thought the Pope would actually thank him for his efforts. But it was not to be. When Luther was called to defend himself at various diets, uh, as they're called, or assemblies, he would repeatedly ask his accusers a very simple question. Just show me from Scripture where I have erred, and I'll take it all back. Just show me from the Bible. Show me from the pages of Scripture where I am mistaken, and I will recant. But they never once did. Uh, this, of course, came to a head uh, when Luther went to the Diet of Worms in 1521 in Worms, Germany. And there, of course, he made his famous, Here I stand, I can do no other speech. One of the most famous speeches in all of history. One of the most civilization-altering speeches in all of history. All Luther had to do to secure his safety is utter one little Latin word, revaco. I recant. And then he would be perfectly safe and he could go on teaching the Bible uh, under these constraints. But instead he stood his ground. He stood his ground. He stood his ground on the truth of God's word. It was one of the greatest cases in all of history of speaking truth to power. And he did so at great personal risk. Everything was on the line. Luther knew that his life was at stake. Luther would soon find himself on the emperor's most wanted list. The emperor wanted him dead. And of course, the pope excommunicated him. But again, in Luther's typical dramatic fashion, dramatic style that Luther was known for, when he received the papal bull excommunicating him, he gathered all the people in town and burned it in their very eyes, declaring that his excommunication was null and void because the case had, been not, had not been made from Scripture. When he went to the diet, as he was leaving the Diet of Worms, he knew that his life was very much in jeopardy. There had been a, a price put on his head, a bounty uh, on his head. And so as he left, he didn't know what was going to happen. But Frederick the Protector, who really emerges as the unsung hero in Luther's story, a, a wise old ruler who didn't necessarily agree with Luther on every little point, especially when Luther challenged uh, the validity of, of relics, which Frederick had a great relic collection. 
But he saw in Luther something he had not seen in anyone else. And he wanted Luther to be able to continue teaching in his university, the university at Wittenberg. And so as Luther was leaving the Diet of Worms, Frederick had his men kidnap Luther. Secretly kidnap Luther and take him away to a secret location at the Wartburg Castle. And Frederick resisted all kinds of pressure and even bribes to hand Luther over. He was pressured. They tried to bribe him. They did everything they could to try to get Frederick to hand him over. Frederick would not. And so for 10 months, Luther stayed holed up in the Wartburg Castle. He disguised himself. He lived incognito. Uh, he stayed hidden while working on various projects. Even his friends didn't know if he was dead or alive. He grew a beard and took on the name Junker George and dressed up as a knight so that he could go out riding on a horse to occasionally check on how things were going to see how the Reformation was progressing in his absence. He hated being in hiding. He hated being in exile. But it was necessary to spare his life. Finally, when it was safe for Luther to emerge from this exile. He came forth back into public life as if he was one who had died and been resurrected. He came forth as a spiritual and national hero, now with a following far too big to put down, now as a force to be reckoned with by both the emperor and the pope. And so Luther's rightly been called God's outlaw. The obedient rebel, the one who defied men in order to be faithful to the word of God. In 1525, in keeping with the drama of his lifestyle, he married a nun. Here he was, a runaway monk. He marries a runaway nun who had escaped from her convent uh, with other young nuns in fish barrels uh, in the middle of the night. His union with Katie von Bora revolutionized romance and revolutionized marriage in the Western world, elevating and glorifying the married state unlike anything in centuries. Luther wrote one sensational transformative book after another. He said he threw an inkwell at the devil, which some took in a literal way. And in fact, you can see an ink stain on the wall of the room in the Wittenberg Castle where he stayed. But actually what Luther meant by throwing an inkwell at the devil is through his writings with ink and with paper, he was fighting a great spiritual battle, dealing Satan great blows, one blow after another, fighting against Satan and his demons through writing and publishing the truth. He fought this great spiritual battle and it was a battle that by God's grace, Luther would win. Thanks to him, the eyes of many millions were open to the truth of the gospel and the beauty of Christ. Thanks to him, a civilization that had been bound in tyranny and darkness found its chains fall off. The slogan of the Reformation became, after darkness, lights. And of course, Luther is the man God used to turn the light on to shine the light of the gospel in the world again. Luther's whole life was a whirlwind of danger and excitement and trial and truth and triumph. He did what no one even thought it possible to do, boldly defying the powers of church and state to bring political and spiritual freedom to millions of people. He was the scholar and the reformer for the common people at a time when all the other academics wrote and did their work in Latin, and even the church's liturgy was in Latin, a language most people did not understand, the common people certainly did not understand. Luther wrote in German. He translated the Bible into German. He put the liturgy in German so the people could understand it. He spoke their language. He spoke to their hearts. He pierced through their deepest fears and anxieties and showed them how they could be assured of a merciful God. How they could be assured of God's love and God's forgiveness. Luther was truly a great man. One of the greatest of the last, I would say, 2,000 years since the time of Jesus and the apostles. But there are also some dark chapters in Luther's life. For example, 
when the peasants began to revolt in his name, and there were those who gathered around Luther who were who became radicals who wanted to go to extremes that Luther thought were unbiblical and ungodly. And so when the peasants revolted, Luther actually encouraged the nobles of Germany to put down the rebellion. And it resulted in the slaughter of upwards of 50,000. Luther had encouraged that bloodshed, and after he realized exactly what had happened, he came to regret it, wishing perhaps there had been another way. Later in his life, he wrote some very regrettable things against the Jews, which were undoubtedly used to encourage anti-Semitism, which continued to be a problem in Europe uh, and a hindrance to the church's mission. At times, his language, particularly towards other Christians with whom he disagreed, could be very intemperate and angry and insulting. A Luther could hurl an insult. He could use invective with the best of them. And despite the fact that he truly was a, a brilliant biblical theologian, the fact that he was a brilliant theologian and student of Scripture, there were still some areas of his thought that were not well developed, that would have to be improved upon, particularly by the next generation of reformers, especially by men like John Calvin who would build on Luther's reforms but take further steps in clarifying things or correcting things that Luther did not uh, reform uh, as fully as he should have. But today I want to focus in particular on one episode of Luther's life that I find very problematic. Uh, it's the Marburg Colloquy, which took place from October 1st to October 4th of 1529, an event that became known as the Supper Strife. It was a meeting called by the ruler Philip of Hesse. Philip was a reformer himself using his political office as he saw fit for the good of the church. And he called the, the colloquy at Marburg really motivated by a desire to unite the two branches of the Protestant movement, the two branches of the Reformation. He wanted to bring together those who were known as the Lutherans in Germany with the Swiss reformers and unite them together, bring them together into one organized church. So you had the, 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 the Lutheran Reformation, led of course by Luther himself, and then you had the Swiss Reformation, which at this point is led by a man named Ulrich Zwingli. And Philip reasoned that if these different Protestant groups could be brought together into an alliance, an ecclesiastical and political alliance, they would not only be fulfilling a spiritual duty, to make the church's unity visible, to seek the unity of the church, they would also be strengthening their position politically and militarily. Because Philip knew that the Reformed movement, the Protestant movement, was very much in jeopardy at this moment, and uh, that the emperor was even gathering his forces to attack the Protestants with force. The Protestants at this point, point were still very fragile. The Reformation was very vulnerable to a military attack by the Roman Catholics led by the emperor. And so unity was not only a biblical obligation, as Philip saw it, but also pragmatically advantageous. It would strengthen their bargaining power when they sat down at the table and made their case for religious liberty. That the Protestants ought to be free to worship God according to his word as they saw it. And so the colloquy at Marburg brought together Luther on the German side, Zwingli on the Swiss side, and a host of other leaders in what at the time was the largest gathering of Protestant theologians ever assembled. Luther went to the colloquy reluctantly. And he was very pessimistic about its prospects. He knew already he disagreed with Zwingli's view of the Lord's Supper. Luther even wrote to Philip ahead of the meeting. He said, I know I cannot give an inch. And after reading their arguments, I remain certain they are wrong. Now we need to talk about this for a few minutes. Understanding the disagreement between Luther and Zwingli over the Lord's Supper is complicated. And to really understand it, we've also got to talk about the Roman Catholic position and then John Calvin's position. So you've really got a number of different positions on the Lord's Supper that are out there. So bear with me here. You need to understand, in the Colloquy of Marburg, there were 15 theological points, 15 theological propositions on the table. And Luther and Zwingli agreed on 14 of them. 14 of the 15, there was full agreement, no dispute. The 15th, that was the sticking point, was the Lord's Supper. 
And they actually agreed on five of the six subpoints under the 15th heading. So you, you could say they had 14 and 5 sixths of the 15 points in full agreement. It's just that one sixth of the 15th point they disagree on. That issue was how Christ is present in the Lord's Supper. And the fact that they would disagree over this, we'll see, it actually became an insurmountable obstacle to the unity of the Protestant movement. Luther, as early as 1521, had rejected the Roman Catholic view of Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper, which had come to be known as transubstantiation. On Rome's view, the properties of the bread remain bread-like, so it tastes like bread, it feels like bread, it looks and smells like bread, but the substance or the essence of it is transformed into Christ's actual flesh. So it still has the outward properties of bread, but the essence of it is converted into Christ's body. The bread and the wine still taste like bread and wine, but their essence is body and blood. That was the Roman Catholic position. Now, all of the reformers rejected that position because they believed it to be based more on Aristotle and Aristotelian philosophical categories than on the Bible. The Bible doesn't talk about substance and accidents the way the Roman Catholic Church was doing in its doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Besides that, there were other abuses and corruptions. In the Roman church, communion ceased to be an act of the whole church. And it became something that the priests did virtually by themselves on behalf of the church. And so the laity, the, the people who gathered for worship each Lord's Day, only got the bread, not the wine. You couldn't have the clumsy lay people spilling any of the blood of Christ. And the whole service, as I already mentioned, was conducted in a language they couldn't understand. And you had the same kind of problems you had with indulgences. The wealthy, for example, could pay, pay priests to have private masses offered in their name or on behalf of loved ones in order to secure a more speedy release from purgatory. You pay the priest some money, he'll go do a mass in your name, and that will speed up your deliverance from purgatory when you die. And so again, we see the Roman Catholic Church had commercialized salvation. They had commodified the Lord's Supper. Basically, salvation could be bought and sold for money. Indeed, Luther uh, had written years earlier, I regard the selling of the Mass as a sacrifice as the greatest of all abominations. For Luther, this was a huge issue. For Luther, the grace of God, God's grace, was not a thing that could be bought or sold it was relational. It had to do with our relationship with God, how God relates to us. And so God's grace was always free. God's grace was simply his gift to us, his gift of himself, his gift of Christ to his people, a gift of love given freely to his people. And so for Luther to receive the sacrament is to receive Christ. It's God's free gift of salvation in Christ. But of course, Luther said Christ can only be received by faith. You can't pay money or do good works in order to gain Christ. All you can do is receive Christ by faith. And so Luther said, when we eat and drink in faith, we really do receive Christ. We receive God's free gift of salvation. Christ is really present to bless us in the supper. Now coming into the colloquy at Marburg, Zwingli agreed with Luther's critique of Rome on virtually every, every point. He agreed with Luther on the importance of full congregational <clears throat> participation in the supper. But Zwingli explained what happened in the supper differently than Luther did. For Zwingli, Christ was not actually present in the bread and wine. Rather, Zwingli said he is present in our memories as we recall what he has done for us. So the bread does not literally become Jesus' body. Rather, it is a sign or a symbol of Christ's body. It points us to Christ's body and what he did for us. And so Zwingli's view is often called the symbolic view or the memorialist view. It's all about our remembrance. Christ is present in our Memories, And he said the bread and the wine are symbols. They're merely symbols. They don't convey what they symbolize. They don't convey the reality that they symbolize. They're symbols that remind us of Jesus and what he's done for us. Luther, of course, was very dissatisfied with that. Luther's view came to be known as consubstantiation. 
because he said Christ is present with, that's the word con in the Latin, Christ is present with or in the bread. Luther said Christ doesn't turn the bread into something else. He doesn't turn the bread into body, as on the Roman view, but rather he adds the presence of his body to the bread. So it's not a transformation of the bread into something else. It's an addition. Okay, you see how complicated this is getting. He adds his presence to the bread. So for Zwingli, the supper was something we do to express our faith and to strengthen our faith as we remember Christ's work for us. For Luther, the supper is God's gift to be received by faith. In the supper, we commune with the Christ who is objectively there, who has joined his presence to the bread and the wine. Well, the colloquy had several intense sessions of discussion, as you can imagine, with these quite different Positions And on the final day of the colloquy, this would be the climactic discussion between Luther and Zwingli. Luther snuck into the meeting room early. Remember how dramatic, you know, Luther always had the flair for the dramatic. He snuck into the meeting room early and he wrote these words on the table, hoc est corpus meum. The Latin words, the Latin for the words of institution, this is my body. He writes those words on the table. He covers it up with a cloth. During the debate, when Zwingli demanded a scripture passage to prove Luther's position that Christ is physically and locally present in the bread, at just that moment, again, keeping with his flair for the dramatic, Luther yanked aside that cloth with those words written there on the table, and he said, here is our passage. You have not yet taken it from us, and we need no other." And Luther went on to explain, God can make matter do as he pleases. God can make matter do as he wants. And so if Jesus said the bread is his body, we need to simply believe it and not try to figure out how it happens so much using science or math or logic. Zwingli, of course, knew the words of institution. Uh, he knew those words that Jesus spoke. This is my body as he was holding the bread. But Zwingli was not convinced that they proved Luther's point. After all, Zwingli said, Jesus also said, I am the vine in John 15 and I am the door in John chapter 10. And those were clearly not literal expressions. So why should the words at the Last Supper be taken literally? Why not take them as a metaphor? Why not take them symbolically? Besides, Zwingli went on to say, Jesus also said he would go away from the disciples in his ascension and he would be seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Why not take those words literally? Those words where Jesus describes his present location in heaven at the Father's right hand. Zwingli said, look, you want to take the words of institution literally? I want to take these words about Jesus being at the Father's right hand literally. Now, let me interject here. Uh, you may be wondering, well, how do you resolve this dispute between Luther and Zwingli? I think the solution to the question of the real presence would be provided by John Calvin just a few years later. Uh, Calvin was too young. He was not yet a public figure yet in 1529. Uh, but when Calvin finally got to work writing on this topic, Calvin, I think, incorporated the best aspects of Luther's views and the best aspects of Zwingli's views while avoiding their respective problems. Calvin agreed with Zwingli that Christ is in heaven in his resurrected body. Ever since the ascension, he is seated at the Father's right hand in heaven. And we know bodies, even resurrection bodies, it would seem, can only be in one place at a time. That's what it means to be a body. If you say a body can be anywhere and everywhere, then how's a body different from a spirit? That's a question Luther never got around to answering. Thus, for Calvin, there is a real absence of Christ in the supper. You could say, Jesus told his disciples in John 16, he said, I came from my Father into the world, and I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And so as the rest of the New Testament shows, we are waiting now for Christ's bodily return to earth at the last day. In the meantime, he is bodily absent from us. That's what we look ahead to at the last day, his bodily return to earth. And so Zwingli was right about the ascended Christ being seated bodily at the right hand of his Father in heaven. At the same time, Calvin agreed with Luther that the Lord's Supper is God's act and God's gift. It's not a mere symbol. It is a true means of grace. 
And he agreed with Luther against Zwingli that it's not just a matter of us making Christ present by conjuring Him up in our memories. That actually makes the Lord's Supper a work we do rather than a gift we receive. No, Calvin said God really does give Christ to us as we eat and drink. We receive Christ by faith as we eat and drink the bread and the wine. And so like Luther, Calvin said, the Lord's Supper is the gospel in bread and wine. It is an edible gospel. And so the Lord's Supper means everything the gospel means. The Lord's Supper means everything that union with Christ means. That's what it is. Union and communion with Christ. Calvin insisted there really is a participation in Christ, a communion in Christ's body and blood, as 1 Corinthians 10 says as we take and eat the bread, as we take and drink the cup. It's not a mere symbol. The symbol and the reality go together. The the symbol carries and conveys the reality it symbolizes. Calvin agreed with Luther. You have to keep symbol and reality connected. Calvin agreed with Luther. The physical really can bear and carry the spiritual. The physical in some way can be a container of spiritual blessing. And so Calvin agreed with Luther against Zwingli. The supper is not a mere memory aid or a mere picture or even just a visible word. Partaking of the supper is a real sharing in Christ, in his person, and in his work. But then how does this happen? If Christ is seated at the Father's right hand in heaven, and if we're here on earth, how do we we get Christ? How does this happen? How is the absent Christ really present with us at the table? How does Christ in heaven feed us on earth at the table? And here is Calvin's great breakthrough, where I think Calvin advances beyond both Luther and Zwingli and actually solves the problem insofar as there is a solution. Calvin, of course, admitted it's a mystery. He said, I can't really explain it. I just have to enjoy it. I don't describe it. I just delight in it. I can't tell you exactly how it all works. But Calvin was able to bring additional biblical material into the discussion that had been overlooked by Zwingli and Luther. And this is what he said. Calvin pointed to the mysterious working of the Holy Spirit. He said, we really do encounter Christ in the bread and wine. We really do feast on him. The ascended Christ is absent in the body, but present through his Holy Spirit. And indeed, this is how he describes it. He says, the sharing in the Lord's body, which I maintain is offered to us in the supper, demands neither a local presence, nor the descent of Christ, nor an infinite extension of his body, nor anything of the sort. That's what Calvin saw the Lutherans doing, is is basically playing around with what it means for Jesus to have a body. For in view of the fact that the supper is a heavenly act, There is nothing absurd about saying that Christ remains in heaven and yet is received by us. For the way in which he imparts himself to us is by the secret power of the Holy Spirit, a power which is able to not only to bring together, but also join together things which are separated by distance and by a great distance at that. And he said, if this seems unbelievable, then let us remember how far the secret power of the Holy Spirit towers above our senses and how foolish it is to wish to measure His immeasurableness by our measure. Somehow, this is the mystery, the Holy Spirit brings together Christ in heaven and we who are on earth so that we can really commune upon Christ Himself in the supper. So again, for Calvin, Christ is not, we don't make Christ present by thinking really hard about Him the way Zwingli suggested. And it's not that Christ makes his humanity ubiquitous so that he in some way descends to us and his body is spread out everywhere, as Luther seemed to be implying, though he never owned the implications of that. No, Calvin said, it's that the Holy Spirit causes us to in some mystical way ascend into the heavenlies to be with Christ and to feed upon Christ in his sacred supper as he has promised. Or perhaps you can think about it this way. You know, Rome referred to the bread as the host, coming from the Latin word hostia, which refers to a sacrificial victim. For Rome, the host is on the table, and Christ is in some sense re-sacrificed in the Mass. And because he's even there locally, that's why in the Roman liturgy, the host will be worshipped and adored. 
For Calvin, Christ is the host, but in, a, in an entirely different sense, the sense we're actually more familiar with. He's the host because he is present at the table to welcome us to the meal. He's not on the table, so to speak. He's at the table. And so as we eat and drink, the Spirit gives us Christ just as He promised. The Lord's Supper becomes to us spiritual food and drink. Indeed, this is why Calvin could go on to say the Eucharist forms the church into God's new society. That slogan, you are what you eat, Luther, I'm sorry, Calvin would have very much agreed with it. You are what you eat, as the saying goes. We eat the body of Christ in order to become the body of Christ. And so sharing this meal together is not only a way Christ shares himself with us, it actually forms us into the body of Christ, compelling us to share our lives and our goods with one another because we are one body. We are one body. Again, listen to what Calvin says. He says, Our souls are fed by the flesh and blood of Christ in the same way that bread and wine keep and sustain physical life. Christ feeds his people with his own body, the communion of which he bestows upon them by the power of his Holy Spirit. He says, The bond of this connection is therefore the Spirit of Christ with whom we are joined in unity. And it's like a channel through which all that Christ himself is and has is conveyed to us. He describes the Lord's Supper as the radiance of Christ's Spirit given to impart to us the communion of His flesh and blood. He goes on to say this then, the implication of the Supper then, if we feast upon the body of Christ, we become the body of Christ. He says, For the Lord so communicates His body to us that He is made completely one with us and we with Him. Now since He has only one body of which He makes us all partakers, it is necessary that all of us also be made one body by such participation. By participating in the supper, Calvin says, we become the one body of Christ. He says the bread shown in the sacrament represents this unity. As it is made of many grains so mixed together that one cannot be distinguished from another, so it is fitting that in the same way we should be joined and bound together by such great agreement of minds that no sort of disagreement or division may intrude. He says the Lord's Supper makes us one body, and so now we've got to go live as the one body of Christ. And so he says we will benefit from the supper the way that we should if this is impressed and engraved upon our minds that none of our brothers can be injured, despised, rejected, abused, or in any way offended by us without at the same time injuring, despising, and abusing Christ himself by the wrongs we do. That we cannot disagree with our brethren without at the same time disagreeing with Christ. That we cannot love Christ without loving Him in the brethren. That we ought to take the same care of our brethren's bodies as we take of our own. For they are members of our body. And that as no part of our body is touched by any feeling of pain which is not spread among all the rest, so we ought not to allow a brother to be affected by any evil without being touched with compassion for him. Accordingly, Augustine, with good reason, frequently calls this sacrament the bond of love. Where is Christ found? Calvin would say, yes, as we eat and drink the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper. But he would say, now having eaten and, drink, and having drunk Christ together, we find the presence of Christ in our brothers and sisters in the church. Christ is really present in each one of us. And so the way you treat your fellow Christian is the way you treat Christ himself. In the meal, Christ shares himself with us. And that in turn compels us to share our lives and our goods with one another as well. And again, this is why the reformers rejected Rome's practice of private masses and insisted that the whole congregation receive both the bread and the wine. Because we are all members together of Christ. It's because in the supper we partake of the first fruits of God's promised kingdom and new creation. We experience the reality that the new creation is simply the old creation transfigured and glorified. That's what we're experiencing at the table. We're entering into the new creation realizing Christ is gathering up all the different aspects of the old creation. It, 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 it's culture. 
and transforming it at the table into his kingdom, into his new creation. Christ is gathering up the old world and making it new in himself. And so the supper really can be understood as a kind of appetizer, an hors d'oeuvre of the final wedding feast of the Lamb that is to come at the last day. The Lord's Supper, Calvin shows us, points to the final transformation of the world and of the culture in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. At the table, God gives himself to us in Christ, who was sacrificed for us. And so we, in turn, give ourselves to God and one another sacrificially in Christ as well. Now, I think if it had been Calvin there instead of Zwingli, at Marburg, representing the Reformed side, things might have been different. Uh, there's actually some evidence that in the years to come uh, that Luther had some familiarity with Calvin's treatise on the Lord's Supper and expressed appreciation for his views. There's a, a story, some think it's apocryphal, but of Luther pulling out Calvin's treatise on the Lord's Supper at a bookstore and, and expressing his wish that Calvin could have been the one at Marburg that would have turned out differently. But the reality is, it was too late. When Marburg failed, the hope of a unified Protestant church failed as well. See, the lesson to take away from Marburg, from this episode in history, is more than just a better understanding of the Lord's Supper and how Christ is present at the table. We also learn from Marburg the devastating consequences of failing to seek unity with our brothers in Christ. While Luther probably had the better arguments at Marburg, he let political concerns and ironically a kind of theological perfectionism get in the way. See, both Luther and Zwingli knew that doctrinal truth is absolutely essential to the life and health of the church. It's not as though either one of them was about to set aside all of this truth. They had put themselves at great risk in order to reform the church and call her back to the truth of the gospel. There's no way they were going to give that up. But on this issue of the Lord's Supper, and particularly the way in which Christ is present in the Supper, neither of them could claim to have all the answers. Neither of them could claim to have the tradition of the church clearly on their side. This was an issue not addressed in the great ecumenical creeds of the church. It had to be considered a secondary issue. It was an issue on which they should have been able to say, hey, you know what, we don't agree on this, but we're going to keep discussing it further. And in the meantime, we ought to have unity with one another and treat one another as brothers because we have agreement on so many other points and so much is at stake in our cooperation. So yes, let's form an alliance. But that's not what they did. Philip, who had called the colloquy, wanted that. And actually, Zwingli wanted that as well. He wanted Luther's friendship as the colloquy was ending and as they were making their way out of town, which they had to do more speedily than they wanted because a plague had just hit Marburg as the colloquy was wrapping up. As they were going their separate ways, Zwingli cried out in tears to Luther, pleading for unity. He said, there are no people on earth with whom I would rather be at one than the Wittenbergers. Zwingli said he looked forward to meeting Luther more than anyone in all of Europe. But Luther steadfastly refused, turning his rejection of Zwingli even into a point of nationalistic pride. Luther said to Zwingli, your attempt to break my neck with John 6 doesn't work. He said, next do not break so easily here. You are in Germany, not in Switzerland. As if to say, go back home. You don't have anything that I need to hear. Martin Bootser, who you've probably heard me talk about before, was at Marburg as a spectator of sorts and a mediator of sorts at the proceedings. He was deeply grieved by the failure of the Protestant leaders to unify. This is what he said. This was Bootser's takeaway lesson. He said, if you immediately condemn anyone who doesn't quite believe the same as you do as forsaken by Christ's Spirit. So if you take people who don't think exactly like you do and treat them as if they are forsaken by Christ and you consider them to be an enemy of the truth for holding something false to be true, who, pray tell, can you still consider a brother? He says, I, for one, have never met two people who believe exactly the same thing. 
This holds true in theology as much as anything else. Boozer says if we require agreement on every single little point, right down to every little detail, we're not going to be able to have unity with anybody because no two people think exactly alike on everything. And so Boozer said we must have brotherly love to fill in those gaps between us. At the Diet of Worms, Luther had said, Here I stand, I can do no other. Boozer wanted Luther and Zwingli at Marburg to be able to say, Here we stand, we can do no other. But it was not to be because of Luther's stubborn refusal. And it's interesting, you think about the, the outcome, the aftermath of this, the year after Marburg in 1530, at the Diet of Augsburg, the German nobles were all now convinced of Luther's reforms. The, the, the German nobles were all on Luther's side. And here they come to the Diet of Augsburg in 1530, the next year, to meet with the Roman Catholic Emperor Charles. And they present to him a unified front. <clears throat> and they refuse his command that they join in the Corpus Christi procession, worshiping and adoring the consecrated elements of the Lord's Supper. They say, in human affairs, we are ready to serve his majesty with our own property, life, and blood, and thus prove that we keep the oath of allegiance. But in divine affairs, affairs, they said to Charles, we have another and a higher Lord and King to whom we owe obedience for our poor soul's sake. His majesty is Lord of our bodies, but not of our souls. And then one of them said this, coming forth and kneeling before Charles, Yes, before I would deny my God and his gospel, I would here kneel before your imperial majesty and suffer my head to be cut off. The noble goes and kneels before Charles and says, I'm not giving up the gospel. You can cut my head off. I'm not going to recant it. And of course, Charles realized he couldn't do that. He can't, take, he can't behead all the nobles of Germany. It would be chaos. It was a glorious moment in the history of the Protestant Reformation. The Emperor Charles had to concede. He had to grant the Lutherans religious freedom. It was a major breakthrough on the pathway to true liberty. But here's the thing. Because of Marburg, the decree of freedom applied only to the Lutherans, not to the Reformed. The Reformed would have to endure several more years of bloody persecution before gaining their freedom as well. Why? Because the Reformed and the Lutherans could not unite at Marburg. See, what was the result? The result of the failure at Marburg is that the Reformed Lutheran split, hardened. They even began to persecute one another eventually. And it set a precedent for Protestants to continue splitting, often over doctrinal minutiae, often over secondary matters. And that continues right down to the present. We live with it in our own day. The fact that we have all these different denominations representing all these different flavors of Christianity. It makes it look like you just pick and choose whatever you want. And if you don't agree, you just go your own way. Go start your own church. We splinter and splinter and splinter. That's the precedent set at Marburg. Luther and the other Protestant reformers cannot be faulted for their break with Rome. They were wrongly driven out of a church they loved and sought to reform. They were never given a fair hearing. We cannot fault them for their break with Rome. But we can certainly fault them for their splits from one another. And so now the very table Jesus gave us to manifest our oneness actually manifests our divisions. As some Christians refuse even to have communion with other groups of Christians. This table was given to us to train us to recognize Christ's presence in one another and to shape us into a people who serve one another in all of life. Even as we've been served by Christ at this table. Even as we serve one another the loaf and the cup as we share the Lord's Supper together. So that's to spill over in the rest of life. We're to serve one another in everything we do. This meal was given to be a love feast, the bond of love in which we are empowered to pour out our lives for one another, even as Christ poured out His life for ours. 
As we partake of the supper, we're to be empowered to pour out our lives sacrificially for one another, even as Christ poured out His life sacrificially for us. Jesus wants there to be one faith, one baptism, one table. But now that table is divided. See, in the aftermath of Marburg, it was inescapable. There now really would be multiple tables within Christendom. The supper strife, as the Marburg Colloquy came to be known, was one of the saddest chapters in the history of the Reformation. Reformers at the table who shared so much still divided from one another. So what do we do about it? This is part of our legacy too as Protestants. What do we do about it? Well, I think instead of moping about it, wondering what if, We're dwelling morbidly on what might have been. I think we need to recognize Christ calls us to end any supper strife right now. He calls us to do the table right here in the present. He calls us to come to the table with peace in our hearts. He calls us to come to the table at peace with our brothers and sisters and Lord. As much as it depends upon us, we ought to be at peace with one another. He calls us to come to the table in oneness as much as we are able. He calls us to come to the table in love, in service, in hope, in unity. We have a chance to in our own versions of supper strife here this very day as we come to this table in humility, forgiving one another. Overlooking flaws and faults in one another. Bearing grudges. Renewing our commitment to love one another sacrificially. To serve one another sacrificially. Coming to this table. Committing ourselves to love one another as Christ has loved us. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You that You have given us this table where we might feast upon Christ Jesus our Savior, His body and His blood made present to us in a mysterious way by Your Holy Spirit. And fathers, we come to this table week after week after week. May we do so recognizing that this table forms us into the one body of Christ so we might live as one body, forgiving one another, serving one another, helping one another, feeling one another's pains, bearing one another's burdens. Oh, help us to live this way that the oneness of our faith in Christ might be manifest to all. This we pray in His name. Amen.